It is a beautiful February morning here in Chicago, and I am sipping my tea whilst enjoying the clouds as per usual. Hello and welcome back to Diddy and Hawthorne the In-Between. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to my podcast about the relevancy of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Our last book in our Love of February series is actually a paperback released two or three years ago, making it the newest book in the bunch and one of the most interesting to dissect. And I believe that it's the first book on our list to classify as a true romance novel, whereas the others were books that were first, say, classics or contemporary fiction with romance as a secondary or tertiary category. Anywho, this book is the first in a duo. The second book is called Always Red, and I actually have kind of a special connection to it because, well, I don't know if you remember Wattpad, but I was one of its first readers on that platform, and one of my weekly highlights during my sophomore year of high school, I swear, was when a new chapter came out every week or so. It gave me the sort of vibe that I'm sure Dickens fans got every time a new uh, copy of the paper came out with another chapter of Oliver Twist or A Tale of Two Cities. In fact, when this book came out in print, I was extremely excited and pretty much pre-ordered both of them right away as soon as I got the message. It's so enervating to be able to read and chat about history's biggest authors, but there's also something to be said for the smaller homegrown authors, which is why I ultimately decided to include this very modern romance novel. To quickly summarize, Veronica Stafford is a beautiful college girl attending culinary school when her mother dies and she becomes an orphan, and she also becomes homeless for the first time. To acknowledge that she's hit rock bottom, she goes to the club, something she would never normally do, where she meets Caleb Lockhart, the school's MVP, basketball player, and one of the most promiscuous men on campus. She ends up having an incident after drinking too much, and Caleb swoops in and takes her home, finding out that she's homeless, and the next day telling her that she could stay with him. She despises him at first, but over time they grow closer. Everything launches from there the way that you would imagine, and within this somewhat stereotypical plotline, there's tons of nuance that I don't want to spoil, and if you want to read this for yourself, I'll leave this here for now. Diving into the analysis, one of the most interesting aspects of Ronan's prose is that she, like many other contemporary fiction writers, blends the many differences between writing and speaking. This thought may just come from being a bibliophile, but I actually think that the trend started with Faulkner in the 1930s, who was the first to pioneer the stream of consciousness of style in writing. Of course, there were other standouts during that time, like James Joyce, who published his groundbreaking and highly experimental Ulysses in 1922, though I still subscribe to the belief that among those standouts, out Faulkner was the most influential. I can attribute this thought in part to the fact that Faulkner was already famous as a normal or mainstream writer before he started experimenting, leading to the broad spread of his less conventional novels by the time they were published. And for his contributions, Faulkner was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, the National Book Award, as well as the Pulitzer Prize, among others. Getting back to the novel though, Ronan's style is based on modern English colloquialisms, much like what I think, I'm not much for YA these days, the style of popular fiction is today. That being said, I also want to mention that Ronan is a Canadian author and that the books take place in Canada, which is important to know because it changes the lens through which you view the writing. Canadian English and American English are obviously extremely similar, and if you don't know how to look for these kinds of things, you might miss the nuance, but I think that some of the popularity of the book can be attributed to the New England and Canadian sensibility of the writing. 
there aren't any drastic changes, like for example, the word order is still the same as it would be in American English, and many of the colloquial sayings are very similar, but when you read it, you can tell that the characters grew up in Canada and therefore have different views and influences, differentiating the tone from the story from other pure romance novels, which are typically very American in origin. Another similarity with YA or contemporary fiction is the fact that this is written from the first person past tense with narrator shifts. Some of the most popular, more romancy novels that are also written in this style include The Hollow Trilogy, Beautiful Creatures, and Twilight, so it seems to be a popular choice amongst authors in the genre. Now I've thought about this quite a bit. Why is it that so much fiction and romance post-1990 is written in this first person past tense? It didn't really make sense to me until I realized that this is how we tell stories in spoken English. I did it just now, in fact, when I said it didn't really make sense to me until I realized dot dot dot. This, cleverly enough, is just another device to make the text A more colloquial and B closer to the spoken word and therefore more relatable to younger readers. It makes sense then why especially newer pre-teen and teen readers are so drawn to this genre because the books are narrated in the same style that they communicate in. In other words, the book is written with the same style as their thoughts. I haven't tested this theory, but I'm wondering now if simply the prose style and also what content the prose style allows, a more juvenile or colloquial style doesn't always best facilitate adult behavior, is what differentiates books like Fifty Shades of Grey from books like Chasing Reds in terms of their audience. Teens who are into romance don't often read books targeted towards adults and vice versa, so how big a factor is the way that the books are written in creating barriers to other audiences? Food for thought, anyway. Also, I wanted to note that this novel has an intense character focus. To illustrate that point, only the two main characters are introduced in the first hundred pages, no one else. This move has the same effect as restricting the setting in a film, think being John Malkovich, Rosemary's Baby, or Rear Window, and allows for a deep dive into the pre-established setting in our characters. That is, we get to know Caleb and Red pretty intimately in the first hundred pages or so, and after then, more characters are introduced yet the same restrictions apply. So there's never truly a point when all the four main characters are together, and the way this book is written makes it a delicate balancing act and a game of trade-offs in terms of character development. If I had to think of another popular equivalent, it makes me think of The Catcher in the Rye to a certain extent. The novel is very character focused on Holden, of course, and when his sister is added to the mix, the novel balances itself out accordingly. For fun, the main differences between the version I first read and the version that is now published are several fold. I think that the most obvious one is that the one novel was expanded into two novels, which is why there's a series now. It says a lot about what I mentioned earlier about pacing, that she was able to split the book in half and still end up at a riveting point in the first novel at the end. A second change is one of the main characters' names. I know I perhaps should have talked about characters a bit more, but the lead main character, Veronica, or Red, her best friend's name was originally Cameron with a K in the Wattpad version, while the other lead main character, Caleb's best friend's name, was also Cameron but with a C. In the book, female Cameron's name has changed to Kara with a K, I think ultimately to avoid the confusion that was sometimes apparent between the two in the original version. This switch, however, did also change the character intrinsically, lending itself to how much names truly matter in our world. Other smaller changes include some perspective shifts to those of minor characters, which gives us a rare glimpse into what is going on even in one of the mentally ill characters' heads as they're scheming to change the expected plotline. 
There's a specific chapter of this novel, actually, that reminds me a teeny bit of The Sound and the Fury, just because the character is fixated on this rabbit that her father kills, and the rabbit is a symbol to her about Red and Caleb's relationship, and that to me as a crucial piece of literary depth that I don't think was there before the book was polished and published. Finally, and very fittingly, I believe that the ending has changed. I might just be crazy, I don't remember, but when the ending came out, I had a kind of aww, but what just happened kind of vibe, and I think that that was in part because of the installments, and as you know, it's hard to drop the kind of subtle, the end is near hints you want to, and your readers are likely going to forget any literary attempts you made earlier in the novel, so the ending to me in the published version was much more nuanced and refined than the original, and the new ending, by the way, is superb. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there's an episode of DHNI for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes, which should be available on whatever podcasting app you're listening on. If you need some guidance, try episode 17 about A Tale of Two Cities. That was part of our December Dickens, and I really enjoyed it. 2019 is a year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at didionandhawthorne.blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at didionin, two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to D-H-N-I. Also stay tuned for the next episode in a few days' time. It will be an episode on the new book, Where Reasons End, by Yoon Lee, which was published on February 5th. Still there? One more thing then. Remember that leaving a comment or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!